0: Today is February 15, 2021. I'm Baba Keshrafi, and I'm speaking with Susan Lindy at the University of Pennsylvania. Susan is author of Rational Fog, Science and Technology in Modern War. Thank you for joining us, Susan.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Baba. From
0: your point of view as a historian, as science and technology develop, as new knowledge and new applications are discovered, How much latitude do we have in determining the relationship between science, technology, and war-making?
1: It's a fascinating question for the simple reason that the entire premise of the book is that we have quite a bit of latitude. That is, that it is possible to make public policy decisions and professional decisions that can orient science, technology, and medicine more conclusively around the very goals that so many professional societies promote, that is, and I quote, the welfare of mankind. Part of what I wanted to show in the book is that technologies and sciences associated with the production of human injury have absorbed the energy and the intelligence of some of the smartest people ever to live. And the resource question um, being implicitly asked in the book is roughly, is this the very best way to use the finest minds who who come into this world? And are there ways to think about science and technology and medicine, these massive systems that could mitigate this allocation of this precious resource, so to speak? Now, your question is slightly more practical because you ask, how much power do we have? And by we, I assume you mean voters or readers or um, the average person who may come to understand that so many brilliant scientists have made weapons that do so much damage to human beings. And and I think we do have a lot of power. It's just that it w- it's a long process of rethinking how we organize science, how we motivate it, how we fund it. The reality is that the defense systems in the United States, but indeed all over the world, are lavishly funded. And that means that they attract intelligent people who want to do maybe sweet technical science. So it is possible to control it, but I would say it's not, it will not be easy. You know, one of my friends says the book is surreptitiously pacifist, and, and it kind of is. It's, a, it's an argument about resources, and it's not technological resources, it's intellectual resources. And are we spending them in the very best way possible? That's the underlying question in the book.
0: When did science and technology become important to waging war?
1: chemistry is the most is the first science that really matters, and that's because of the rise of the gun. Uh, the gun was introduced into Europe in about 1320. It had been heavily used in Chinese warfare from about 1100. Europeans embraced it, and it transformed the ways that European armies were organized. It also led new states to invest in chemical laboratories to produce better gunpowder. And indeed, the need for gunpowder and basically for manure of some kind to get saltpeter. This played a role in colonial, in the creation of colonial empires as well. So you would usually say it's somewhere around 1600 that technical expertise is very important to the modern state. There, there are plenty of earlier forms of technolo- sophisticated technology used in warfare, but, the, but what we think of as modern science, uh, with the priorities and training involved it's it's roughly around then. I would say the first fully scientized war, by my definition, is the first World War. There are all these threads in Crimea in the the American Civil War, but it's really the first world war where so many forms of very sophisticated laboratory knowledge came together on the battlefield and since then, of course there's there's no escaping it. Virtually all warfare is scientized.
0: And as you say, World War I is sometimes called the chemist's war because of the use of chemical weapons, and World War II is called the physicist's war because of the atom bomb and radar. How did the experience of these wars in particular change the relationships between pure science and military science?
1: The experiences of the First and the Second World War taught states around the world how productive it might be to fund science and technology. The efforts of the Office of Scientific Research and Development during the Second World War particularly led to so many new discoveries, new technologies, new weapons, but also new forms of healing and protection to DDT, to penicillin, to radar, to the atomic bomb, to all forms of sound control and sound detection, to surveillance systems. These were so effective, so powerful, so well-funded, And what the WARS did was to provide an example that demonstrated that enrolling experts, engineers, scientists, and physicians in your systems for the pursuit of state goals, of military goals, paid off. And the interesting thing about the Office of Scientific Research and Development is that the payoff was flexible. So OSRD would fund multiple projects that used different strategies with the same end in mind. And the idea that only one would be successful, but they should all Be funded. So the time pressures during the Second World War led to models for how to fund science that were revolutionary and that were imitated around the world.
0: And then after World War II, the questions of how to injure the human body and how to control the human mind became heavily supported sciences. Can you tell us about that?
1: You know, part of what's interesting about injuring the human body is that at first, in early warfare, the goal is just to tear it open to, uh, if you think about what you do with a, a hatchet or a sword, it's blunt instrument damage. And part of the reason that we identify the First World War as the first fully scientific war is that the forms of injury that were important in that warfare depended on sophisticated laboratory research. So chemical weapons came out of Haber's elite chemistry lab and enrolled future Nobel Prize winners. But the same happened with many other forms of injury. So, for example, one of the cases I look at is the rise of scientific wound ballistics. And wound ballistics probably started at Army Proving Grounds probably around 1909 when experimental shooting of goats began to try to figure out whether you could shape the bullet in a different direction so that it would do more damage. Could you um, modify the the rifling in the barrel? Could you uh, adjust the speed? In other words, what would cause the most damage possible to a goat or whatever they were shooting in the field? But it became much more scientific in the course of the Second World War, when one of the earliest initiatives was to shoot primates and study what bullets of different speeds, different velocities and shapes and and different spins, how much damage they did in primates as surrogate humans, surrogate soldiers— Primates are expensive, they're difficult to keep, and actually fairly quickly, the, uh, the surrogate soldiers switch to cats because cats could be readily acquired and bullets could be shrunk to the size that was suitable so that the proportion or the, the uh, size difference between the body of a cat and the bullet was equivalent to the proportion or size difference between the body of a soldier and a regular bullet. And these experiments with cats, the reason they're interesting to me in terms of the uses of bodily injury or the, the construction of the history of war as an episode in the history of the body and the history of embodiment and how bodies stand as evidence for anything. The reason they're interesting is because of the scientific effort to calculate, you know, an equation that could perfectly describe these relationships um, in ways that could be applied practically in the battlefield, but that also had a sort of more fundamental goal, which was to provide insight in things like speed and tissue and so on. And so some of the experiments with cats were carried out at Princeton University in a Laboratory. And here is an example of elite scientists turning their attention and sophisticated attention to the very best way to do as much damage as possible. Wound ballistics experts also studied they used what I would call the natural or the real-time experiment of battlefield injury to calculate exactly how to guide a sniper in in ways of killing. So one goal was to figure out what's the best configuration for shrapnel, what is the best way to build a mine, where how high should a mine if someone steps on it, how high should it explode? And one one of these studies that was based on material from the Second World War, that is, persons who were killed in action in the Second World War, found that, that if you mapped all these wounds from a large numbers of soldiers on a single body, the single most vulnerable place was the neck. And so the lesson of that was that snipers should be taught to aim you know, right around the neck, and they would be more likely to produce a fatal injury. Now, all of this has all of the trappings, of mid-century science. It has statistical calculation. It has the careful measurement of of fragments of shrapnel. It has, uh, you know, equations that reveal something. And it's this configuration, when I talk about the battlefield of the body, what I'm really talking about is how it is that very detailed ways of understanding human bodily injury were promoted and embraced, and what that tells us about modern warfare. The same is true for what I call the battlefield of the mind. Now, there's a long history of psychological studies of what causes stress. It goes back at least more than a century, but in mid-century culture and and science in the United States and elsewhere. The question of how to produce terror, what would scare people, what would animate them, how could you persuade them with propaganda? These were major scientific enterprises. And now everybody knows the Milgram studies, and I deal with these in the book a little bit. Stanley Milgram was the Yale um, psychologist who was studying submission to authority in a series of experiments where he could persuade people to. To do what they believed involved um, increasing electric shock to persons who answered uh, a question wrong. And the Milgram experiments were about in theory, about the nature of submission to authority, and they were a way of interrogating the rise of fascist states, why had people participated in the Nazi state, but they were also a way of seeing how human beings could be tightly controlled, what were the parameters that would lead to the control of the mind. Observers called the Cold War the social scientists' war. We say it's a Cold War because in theory it didn't have active battle between the the bipolar forces, the two main forces, but it was a propaganda war. And understanding how the mind worked was a way of persuading people all over the world who, under the Truman Doctrine, were seen as in constant danger of falling to Soviet ideology and becoming communistic. How do you persuade people all over over the world that the democratic and capitalist state is better and that they will be better off in this state. And so it, so these two battles, like how is science applied to producing more human injury, and how has science been applied to manipulating the human mind and illuminating how the mind works. If you think about the modern brain mapping program, one of the key funders, and indeed the instigating funder, is DARPA. So for the Pentagon, for military forces, knowing how the mind works and how to manipulate it is a military goal. It's a very important defense goal.
0: How did the massive involvement of the military and the enormous military funding of science and technology change the lives of scientists?
1: It was definitely in some ways it was a tragedy the the record of scientists who were shut out because of the McCarthy hearings because they were seen as security risks there's a pretty strong trail suggesting that The status of women in science was affected because women were viewed as more vulnerable to propaganda or uh, not strong enough to, to resist the Soviets in some way. They were they couldn't keep secrets. Uh, that basically as science became more and more important to the security of the state, the experience of being a scientist changed. And it changed because individual scientists had to learn how to keep secrets. They had to um, make decisions about how much of their time they would spend doing research that facilitated the needs of the state and that was focused on the production of human injury or on the production of military success. And they they went through, in various iterations, a moral debate about what it meant to be a scientist in a world where science was lavishly supported by military funding. The the debate in some cases was quite overt. It involved societies and organizations that struggled to come to terms with what responsibilities their members had. So the microbiologists for really the first... 40 years of the Microbiology Society they permitted presidents to work at Dietrich, which was the biological weapons lab, uh, to be really involved even in biological weapons. And then at some point, I think it's about 1982, the microbiologist said, you can't work in biological weapons and also have a leadership role in our society. So it was a decision about what it means to be an individual who pursues the production of biological weapons or who's willing to work on biological weapons, can can you be seen as legitimate? The same thing happened with the physicists, although in a somewhat more dramatic manner because the physicists were directly responsible for the production of nuclear weapons and deeply engaged in the nuclear weapons enterprise. And one of the things I found in looking at archives is that individuals, you know, relatively low-profile individuals, were making constant calculations of how long they were willing to work on defense topics. So they would say things like, I can do this for five years years, but not seven. Uh, And then I'll go back to academe and go back to real research or pure research. And they were also actively working, the physicists were actively working to have an impact on the, the problem of the global arms race. Many physicists believed that it would be better if the number of weapons were reduced, controlled. And even remember at the very beginning, and this was the Baruch plan, this is the fall of 1943, the proposal was that nuclear weapons dictated or made necessary what we might think of almost as a a one-world government, that is, that all nations would be given access to the, quote, secret of the atomic bomb, and there would be a protocol for inspections. The United States would decommission all of its nuclear weapons. It would permit open inspections to show other states that it was not stockpiling nuclear weapons. And it was a very ambitious plan to eliminate the possibility of the arms race that very, very quickly unfolded after 1945. So physicists saw themselves not only as technical experts, but as people who had a political or a social obligation to intervene and to make a difference. Honestly, in the 20th century, I believe that it transformed what it meant to be a scientist of every conceivable kind. We, we talk about the physicists and the chemists, but it was all the social scientists. It was archaeologists. Their careers were transformed. It was, I can't, you know, I have a kind of parlor game where I ask my students, name a science that you think has nothing to do with defense interests. And I can always find a project that was deployed uh, in the services of the Pentagon in that field. So it's kind of, it's as though everything that it means to be a technical expert, and there is embedded in this idea of being a technical expert, is a kind of romantic vision of helping people and doing good in the world. That's why I mentioned at the beginning that phrase, the welfare of mankind, in the founding documents for virtually every scientific society that was created after 1950 or 1945 or so, that phrase disappears our group is committed to the welfare of mankind. And this commitment, and there, there are dozens of them that come into being at this time, and they say physicians for social responsibility and, you know, psychologists for social responsibility, all these groups are living in what we could call a form of cognitive dissonance. And it's the dissonance between the ideals of modern science, which is that it transforms the world in positive ways, and the reality of scientific practice, which is that defense funding has recalibrated what the goal of so much science and technology is in ways that conflict with what we think of as the best ideals or the best goals of modern science.
0: So you and I live in the United States, which is in a state of seemingly permanent war with massive military budgets and very close ties between the military and scientific institutions and high-tech industry. What kinds of perspectives does this history that you shared with us offer on our contemporary situation?
1: One thing I tell my students is that we have to recognize that we are the beneficiaries, and and I mean everybody, every student I teach. We are the beneficiaries of this incredible defense funding. The United States spends more every year on defense than the next eight or ten countries combined. Nobody comes close. The only other countries that begin to spend as much of their GDP on um, on defense as the United States are countries engaged in more or less permanent warfare, smaller, uh, less organized countries with fewer resources. The United States is the only only wealthy nation that spends like this on defense funding. And I'm not going to say that that funding has no consequences for us that we might appreciate, by which I mean the relative security of living in the United States, living in one of the most powerful countries in the world, living in a country that is relatively invulnerable to attack. 9-11 was scary because it challenged this idea that all the defense funding in the world could protect the United States. And maybe the coronavirus has a similar quality. But the reality is, I tell my students, We are on, we used to be, on this beautiful campus um, with lovely buildings and great laboratories and uh, relatively secure circumstances, and that is because of the military power of the United States. So we're the beneficiaries. That's the first thing that has to be recognized and admitted, that we have gained something from this spending and this commitment a kind of security, a a kind of Almost the capacity of the nation to bully people all over the world to get what it wants in terms of economics, um, in terms of global trade, in terms of territory and access to bases around the world, and so it means we benefit. We benefit from the you know the long-term technological advantages of it, but it also means that we're paying for it, and we are our tax dollars are significantly allocated to defense funding. And we, therefore, have a direct stake in how our, how that money is spent. Now, I used to have a joke that I told my students all my tax dollars went to the National Park Service, but that was my way of feeling better about how defense funding works in the United States. So if your question is, how do we as individuals in the United States, in this prosperous nation, and in this position of privilege that we occupy, how do we come to terms with it? And I'm, I can't answer that question perfectly. I would say that my book is partly an effort to at least begin to address what it means to think critically about these technological systems. And I hope I can give people some of the tools that come out of science and technology studies and out of the history of science, some of the thinking tools. That can ask different questions. You know, I have read probably every or many, many books about military technologies. And many of those books, and especially, I'm, I'm especially struck by how the gun studies of the gun work this way. You can read 20 books about the history of the gun without a single scholar talking about the people who get shot. And so in my book, I say every single system I'm talking about has people who build the system people who deploy it and make decisions about its use, and people who experience what that system means. So the people on the ground, the people who get bombed, the people who get shot, the people who get irradiated as a result of nuclear weapons. And you cannot understand these systems if you leave those people out of the story. So I guess what I hope is that the book offers some ways of thinking about these kinds of systems and some questions that I hope any consumer, any of us in the United States or in any privileged position around the world would attend to as they think about science and technology in war.
0: Thank you, Susan, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us.
1: Thank you, Babat.
0: Susan Lindy's book is Rational Fog, Science and Technology in Modern War. from Harvard University Press. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video forums, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.